Porter. What do you want? May I have your bags, madame? Why? He's a porter. He wants to carry them. Why should you carry other people's bags? Well, that's my business, madame. That's no business. That's social injustice. That depends on the tip. Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1923, and Molly Raspberry joins us to discuss Charlie Chaplin's A Woman of Paris. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Welcome, everyone. We're here with Molly Raspberry, and we're here to talk about our second non-Lubitsch film of the podcast. I tried to talk myself out of dealing with A Woman of Paris, but I, I don't think we can get through this season without talking about A Woman of Paris by Charlie Chaplin. So, Molly, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And what made you want to select the non-Lubitsch film of this specific era in silent cinema? Thanks for having me, Devin. And I think it's because, well, originally in undergrad, I had a bit of an obsession with Charlie Chaplin. I remember watching City Lights and Modern Times and The Great Dictator in high school. And I was kind of obsessed with his work. And I was obsessed with how he how he blocked and edited a scene. I was obsessed with how he composed the music itself, even though he was very stringently against voices in cinema and tried to keep silent cinema going as long as he could, even when that wasn't the norm past 1927. And I also, I think I connected with his politics in a sense, because I have very left-leaning politics too. I wouldn't go as far as him, but because he was definitely a communist sympathizer, but he wanted to stand up for the little guy because he was one of those people. He grew up attending a pauper school. It was literally called that. His mom was forced into a sanatorium when he was a child. His father practically abandoned him. And so the idea, it was, it was that dichotomy you see where people in Hollywood would say he is the true ideal of the American dream when he never even believed it. And he fought against it. And a lot of his films just truly resonated with me and just fascinated me. And he was a fascinating figure, even with all the issues he had with women issues and his womanizing, which I think really strikes a chord right now, especially because we have a lot of troubles with age gap romances. But I still think he is a figure well worth remembering. And if not idolizing, respecting, because he was a true perfectionist and he believed what he truly believed is worthy of merit and discussion. On a little side note there, I'm constantly relieved at how easy it is to do a Lubitsch podcast series <laughs> due to this reason, because he is, <laughs> I'm convinced, one of the least, you know, with our modern moral codes, problematic directors of this era. <laughs> um, he just yes. seems like he's like, all the biographies of him start with like, you know what? This guy was a nice guy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Chaplin. And uh, and yeah, and, and this film comes at a fascinating turning point in Chaplin's mm-hmm. career, doesn't it? This is his first mm-hmm. work with United Artists, which he co-founded in 1919, but wasn't able to actually produce his own film with it until 1923. His previous film was The Pilgrim, which was a kind of a tramp film. Keystone film. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What I'd like to ask you is, A Woman of Paris opens with the following title card. To the public, in order to avoid any misunderstanding, I wish to announce that I do not appear in this picture. It is the first serious drama written and directed by myself, Charles Chaplin. What moved him to make this major, major swerve in his career at a point when he was, 
you know, at the peak of his acclaim and fame for, you know, appearing on screen as this archetype. I think one thing that was posited that a lot of people don't bring up or talk about, it's from this biography I was reading by Joyce Milton. And she wrote that in... 1922, one of his former lovers, Floris Deshawn, committed suicide, even though he tried to avoid it and people would ask him about it. And he just was very tight lipped about it. It was shocking. And a lot of people didn't want to believe it. And a lot of them said, oh, it was an accidental death. But a lot of biographies, including Joyce, doesn't believe that. And I think that really affected him. And I think that also really informed the climax of the film as well, which we'll talk about later. Of course, Pola Negra was another one. So I think it was several women in his life who did because Pola Negra was also his fiance close to this time. She had a, a lot of autonomy against him and she could speak at his level, which I think at first he really liked. But then he grew tiresome of it because he wanted someone who I think he did want a woman that would follow his control because he was a perfectionist. And of course, the last one that I think mostly inspired this film was the gold digger, as they called her. Peggy Hopkins Joyce. Yes, that's her. Yes. I love there was in Joyce Milton, the biography, it brought up that she would regale Chaplin with a story about one of the men who wanted to sleep with her. And he was like banging on her door, asking her. And she sent him a note right through the door and said, I will only let you in if you give me a check of half a million dollars. And Chaplin just thought that was so audacious. And he, I think he admired her. I think I counted she had about seven husbands by the time she died and she had numerous affairs. And that sounds a lot like Chaplin where he had several wives and he had several love affairs with so many other women. All of his co-stars, he had, he mostly had an affair with them. So he's seeing this woman kind of act like him and just be like, women could actually do this. And he wanted to show that realism, I think, in this film, which I was watching a documentary about this film with Liv Ullman expressing her admiration of it and bring how the women act in this movie and how Chaplin would direct these women to act and because he was a real actor's director because he was in front of that screen, which is interesting because Joyce Milton did not seem to think that was the case. She seemed that the character Chaplin cared about most was Pierre and more interested in than Marie. So I was just fascinated by those two different opinions with that. I remember seeing that tile screen and thinking, I think he should have gone the Mel Brooks route and just taken his name off the project because that's how Mel Brooks was able to hide the fact that he produced the fly and produced the elephant man because everybody would expect it to be a comedy if they saw Mel Brooks' name in there. <laughs> that's amazing. I did not know he produced either mm -hmm. of those. Wow. Yeah, David Lynch technically has the big career because of Mel Brooks because Mel Brooks saw Eraserhead and Mel Brooks was the main producer for Elephant Man and wanted a different director, a different approach. And he thought Eraserhead, the tone, the aesthetic would perfect for Elephant Man. So he hired David Lynch to direct Elephant Man. And that's why his wife, Anne Bancroft, the amazing Anne Bancroft, is there in the film as well. And, and so, yeah, we mm -hmm. have this interesting circumstance mm -hmm. where uh, Chaplin is taking multiple risks, right? He is, one, making a drama. Mm -hmm. uh, two, the drama is about... Um, low-key people. It's it's not this, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've seen my fair share of melodramas from this era at this point. You know, drama is not new to cinema, but this specific mm -hmm. register 
of uh, kind of drama by implication, drama by the sidelong glance by the camera pointed away at a reaction of something. Not fully novel. I mean, we've seen little bits of this even in Lubitsch's Own the Flame, which is his last Berlin mm-hmm. film. But this specific stew with its own new combination of flavors. I'm overextending this metaphor, but, you know, what, what can you do? Mm-hmm. And not only that, but um, I mean, he does appear in the film technically as a porter for about 12 frames. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is the specific situation with United Artists. I mean, that's incredibly tied into this where, you know, by mm-hmm. founding the first artist led major production studio, I should say, in Hollywood that gave him the latitude to take this huge risk. I've read very contradictory things on as to whether the risk paid off in the financial sense, where the Scott Amon book uh, claims that Chaplin kind of underplayed the success uh, when it was actually, by most metrics, it turned a profit. Yeah. But it wasn't the mm-hmm. smash that, like, you know, the kid was. No, I think it, especially in Europe, it got a lot more rave reviews from Europe and European artists like Lubowitz. And I think that really played a role because Chaplin wanted to connect with America and he Mm -hmm. wanted to connect with that American zeitgeist, I guess you could say, where he was trying to convey messages about class struggles and how there are no true heroes or villains. They're just very complicated people. And it's not as clear cut as others want to say. It's not like with Douglas Fairbanks with The Thief of Baghdad, where he is a clear cut hero in this role. He is the swashbuckler. We're supposed to root for him. Mm-hmm. And Chaplin was just saying, no, there's that doesn't exist in the real world. As he said, it's a drama about fate. There's not as much free will as we deign to believe in mm-hmm. our sense of the world, which would make sense from Chaplin's perspective, because I mean, he grew up in abject poverty and he knows that that in his mother's illness was no effect of anything she did. It was just just life. And it and life is absurd in those matters, which I really appreciate with Chaplin. I do like that there is this part in the biography I was reading where a lot of things Chaplin likes to put in is stuff that really only poor people would think of rich people liking, like the truffle soup, soup mm-hmm. in that scene. And Greta Garbo is saying that only poor people think rich people eat that <laughs> in <laughs> one screening. And the clothes were apparently five years out of date because <laughs> all of them came from the actors. The actors provided the clothes, not really set designers or set dressers. So oh, interesting. Yeah, so Chaplin was trying to aim for the poorer classes. He wasn't trying to aim for the richer people like he was a part of, which is fascinating, this dichotomy, because we're going to be clear with this. He was a Marxist by all senses of the terms. That's why he was exiled to Switzerland. And he was a communist sympathizer. He actually promoted Bolshevism to his friends. And uh, some of his friends were actually, you have three million in the bank account, Charlie. Are Why are you promoting <laughs> this? You are the American dream in this sense. So he's a fascinating, contradictory figure. He wanted to helped the underclass through his art. The way he saw labor was also a part of that because he would be a perfectionist, but he'd also would go and have breaks where he would play the violin because that's the way he would structure it. And he would just play violin left-handed because he was left-handed and just stop and take a break and have everybody be like, we can take a break now. We can do this because that was just how he looked at labor and would trying to be true to those ideals. He was also influenced by a celebrity hobo, I guess you could call him, Jim Tully. He was a hobo who had to travel around America and he recorded these travels and it became a bit of a success. And he became sort of this oddity in Hollywood and Chaplin idolized him. Mm. 
And Tully kind of saw this film as too optimistic for the real world, I guess you could say, or he thought it's unrealistic at points. So it's fascinating to see what Chaplin wanted to do. Chaplin also, he really would promote his Romani ancestry through his one grandma. And he would say, I'm the, I don't want to say the G word, but that's what he would call himself a bunch of the times because he wanted to be part of that underclass. Mm -hmm. But a lot of other people say like, you're not Romani, dude. I think you're pushing this way too hard. It almost seemed a bit like a bunch of white people go, I have Native American ancestry. It's like, uh, do you? Can, can you tell that? So Chaplin, he was a lot like us, a lot more than we'd like to think. The contradictions you're laying out within Chaplin, you know, the fact that he was one of the richest, most famous entertainers in world history at this point. Mm-hmm. There's this perfect diamond of a rags to riches story mm-hmm. in that sense and yet held communist sympathies. And that all plays into this film in such a fascinating way, because just to, I mean, usually I'm trying not to recap the films at all, but I figure because this is a little bit of a off the path film, I should, where, you know, the film concerns Mm -hmm. a woman, Mary St. Clair, who is in love. She's a country woman from a village outside Mm -hmm. of Paris. She's in love with this man, the artist Jean Millet. Things don't work out between them due to circumstance. And she Mm -hmm. leaves for Paris due to miscommunication, they each kind of have a little grudge towards each other uh, under the surface as mm-hmm. a result of this. Um, she moves to Paris and immediately falls in with Pierre Ravel, played by the like, luminous mm-hmm. Adolphe Menjou. He is just the greatest mustache. But anyways, I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, she you know, becomes a woman of Paris, a society lady being kind of kept by this womanizing aristocrat. Then things play out. So the film is this class play, right? About you know a woman uh, who moves from this very, very pastoral society mm-hmm. full of romance and conventional ideas of romance to this very modern mm-hmm. 1920s Paris. So much of Chaplin's own internal mm-hmm. conflicts about his own fame and fortune feel embedded here, especially when it comes to the way mm-hmm. that the film, as you mentioned earlier, um, avoids what we might call conventional ideas of virtue, right? Where the Jean, mm-hmm. the romantic artist, is a hypocrite. Yes, he is. (laughs) And Pierre, the kind of a womanizing aristocrat dandy, is Mm -hmm. honest. (laughs) He's maybe the most honest character in the film. And uh, Mary is caught between all this. It's it's fascinating. And it doesn't help that the reason she's caught between this at first because she can't go home. Because in the first part of the movie, she runs off into the night with Jean for a rendezvous. And she's not allowed to come back because her father discovers that she did that and basically condemns her as a ruined woman. Mm -hmm. So once she hears that there's something's happened, not knowing that her fiance Jean's dad died, that they can't get married for that reason. She obviously assumes that his parents probably convinced him not to marry her because they considered her a ruined woman. So it's kind of her way when she goes to Paris to say, you're already calling me a scarlet woman. So I will be that since you've already drawn this line that so I will just become this person you already think I am. And that's where the communication happens. And it's it's a tragedy. Once you start to realize that you realize that she is a victim of circumstance. And the film is incredibly self-contradictory when it comes to its treatment of Mary, for example, where throughout the film, she's surrounded She's caught between the dandy aristocrat here. He's aloof from everything. He's he's like one step removed from mm-hmm. Groucho Marx and how outside of the film's conflicts he seems. 
<laughs> and and so he's clearly portrayed as someone unable to take anything seriously and also just removed from the world, mm-hmm. removed from the actual concerns of the common people. And yet, Jean is constantly being inhibited by, I mean, one, the fact that he, he basically seems like a cipher for the views of those around him. But the views around him tend to be those of his parents, which are completely conservative. And the film seems very simultaneously... Mm-hmm extremely critical of that kind of conservative mindset towards mm-hmm. conventional virtue and especially women, but also ends on the note of our lead character basically going off to a life of, it is implied kind of chastity and starting a orphanage. And this is played as, I don't know how triumphant it's supposed to be. The ending seems ambivalent about it, but it's still seen, it still reads to me as something resembling a return to virtue. Well, there were still censors even before the Hayes Code, but it was not as stringent at the time. But there was still that part of that. And originally from Joyce Milton's biography, it was going to end where she's on a she and his and Jean's mother are on a leper colony helping people (laughs) inflicted with leprosy. And that's more scandalous. Yes. And they were just like, and I think he told that to Jim Tully and Jim just said, that is the most unrealistic piece of garbage I've ever heard. (laughs) Oh, it's like that. Well, sort of like that. So, and he still didn't like the ending that he drew up on, but it was always going to end with Jean dying because as Joyce brings up, I think that it was inspired by Florence's death mm. in real life and her suicide. And I, I do believe that theory. That was just how it was going to be. And it's interesting because the conflict is something of Marie St. Clair's own making because mm-hmm. she can go with Jean. It doesn't really matter because Pierre is just saying, I can just get another woman, which is what Chapel was trying to bring up that a lot of the upper class see a lot of lower class people as disposable and that they can just be replaced. It doesn't matter. So this is kind of a conflict of her own doing. But Marie loves being able to survive wealthy because there's a scene, this famous scene where Pierre just laughs at her where he says, you're going to leave me. And she says, yes, I can't. I don't need this. Just throws a pearl necklace out the window but then takes it back from the beggar who's outside because she was like, oh, wait, I did want that pearl necklace. And Pierre is laughing at her. He's playing the saxophone. Pointing out how hypocritical she is. It's And, and that's a bit of business that Lubitsch would later borrow and design for living, I should add. Too. Yes. That kind of little <laughs> bit of a illustration of hypocrisy or at least indecision. But yes, that, that, that mm-hmm. that's such a good example, mm-hmm. too, of this film's use of objects and mm-hmm. business and inference to express character, right? Where... You know, instead of having a dialogue scene where title cards tell us that I can imagine a lesser version of this film where she like does a melodramatic gesture, leans on a wall and says, Mm -hmm. I want to leave for love, but I uh, what keeps me is the wealth, you know, and no, we see it in action. Yes. And and we see her in a very, you know, I think humorous, entertaining way uh, express herself. And there's so much of that. The windows of the train going by that create this ghostly light you have probably my favorite is the masseuse yes i love that Liv ullman in the documentary was discussing how chaplin brilliantly instead of having her describing just like all these luxuries and how the women she's massaging having all these luxuries and how happy she is and the masseuse is just getting angrier but instead of beating her back you see it in her expression where she's very disgruntled and her eyebrow furrows even more a lazier director would have had her just like 
beat her back right there with that. But no, Chaplin, as Chaplin would say, when he would actually tell people when they're too overactive, he said, remember, it's cinema. It's not the theater. They're actually peeking at Mm -hmm. you. Don't sell it. Because they're right near you. Exactly. Exactly. There's so many little moments of that. I mean, even outside the character stuff, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to refrain from turning this into a litany of little gestures I love, but I I do want to point out (laughs) my favorite scene in the movie might be the pillow fight Mm -hmm. party scene. Yeah, it's just so salacious. It almost feels like this. It's what you say. You kind of summed it up perfectly, which is it feels like not a rich person's idea of what rich people do with their time, Mm -hmm. where it's they they find (laughs) these incredibly almost silly ways, uh, childish almost ways of doing things as, you know, as common as like a striptease or a, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where you have this woman turned into a spindle. This mm-hmm. rich man turns around and winds a blanket off of her. I, I, it sounds completely mm-hmm. unstageable the way I say it, but the way it's played yes. is is so oddly beautiful and mm-hmm. and kind of in a way that teases the audience and just and, and you know the reaction shots the actors are so perfectly performed. But I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. It's 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 beautifully mounted ridiculousness. Yes, and I think it also should be brought up because of these scenes where you see these women acting a little salacious and men too. And you didn't really see this, especially with women in cinema. Mm. A lot of it was proliferated with works of D.W. Griffiths, who had Lillian Gish play the ingenue. And Mary Pickford would not really play these characters, too. So you didn't really see women acting like this in cinema at the time. You didn't because we still had the moralizing, which is why it's refreshing to see a film like A Woman of Paris, where the film doesn't actually really frame Marie as a sinful woman that deserves to be punished or killed like a lot of the Hays Code films, because if it was during the Hays Code, she would have been killed, killed, or she (laughs) would have been or would have been imprisoned for sleeping with two men outside of wedlock, because there's no doubt Mm -hmm. in your mind that, oh, she is she is sleeping with Jean. That's why her father disowned her, even though they were going to get married and that she's having an affair with this guy who finds her replaceable. She's sleeping with him. She's just like, I earned this by sleeping with you with the pearl necklace sort of thing. The world has always been more progressive than what people assume because we, a lot of people have been giving a sanitized version of events. Yeah, well, I mean, it's this interesting thing where you, you see what was actually going on in the free code film. The kind of strangely infantilized idea that a lot of people either criticize or in the case of certain people idolize um, from the 50s, etc. It was false. It, was, it wasn't true. It was a creation of, in this case, a cultural output that was deliberately infantilized. It's just like the separate beds and I Love Lucy and all those shows and can't not even saying pregnant, saying I'm late because yes. that was where the term came from. Because you couldn't say that. You could offend the moral sensibilities of the masses. Mm-hmm. It's just, no, you really did it. It was just censorship because of things that especially a lot of white men found uncomfortable and they didn't want to have brought up in the cultural sphere and normalized. I mean, this whole show has been an interesting exercise in that of like going, yeah, wow, people back then were, were a little <laughs> more libertine than is popularly thought. It's worth noting, too, that uh, most of Chaplin's work in this period, virtually all the features up until the circus, the versions we're able to see are not the versions that audiences mm-hmm. saw back in the day. This, no. in, in some mm-hmm. cases, like with the kid having recently, as mm-hmm. prep for this podcast, I watched the official version of the kid. 
the you know the 70s recut and then mm-hmm. i was so curious i watched mm-hmm. the original and the original is in my opinion better significantly <laughs> so and mm-hmm. we can't really access at least i've not been able to find in my gray market online mm-hmm. hunting the original version of this women of paris is only available yeah. with a i believe a revisionist score done by chaplin later on yeah, it was his last thing he ever did before he passed oh, interesting. in the 70s. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and I think much worse is the fact that it's only available at 24 frames per second. Yes. And, and so, oh, no. And so everything is, you know, sped up by 20 odd percent. And I think, you, mm-hmm. you know, in, I, I don't think it's ever good. But in the context of like, you know, two real tramp comedies, OK, it survives. But this film, I think, is materially hurt by the fact that everyone is sped yes. up and beats aren't allowed to breathe as much so that's to me that, that i is agree yeah what was the context behind chaplin's seemingly like almost unprecedented reimagining of this entire period of his filmography uh 50 years hence he was already doing this before because there are two versions of the gold yes. rush one where there's no narration and another where there is narration and it's his own voice narrating what's going on maybe he thought that he was trying to push push silent cinema too hard. Maybe, maybe he wanted to revise some Thor things because he made this when he was only 31 years old, which is very young. Maybe I think he felt like I was very immature for this. And I wanted to fix up some other things. And I mean, we all, we're all our own worst critics. I think that's a part of that, especially stuff when we made when we were young, Mm -hmm. younger, and we have to sit and watch that or because I can't imagine, I don't even like looking through my old high school papers anymore. <laughs> I guess we could also bring up the kind of the juicy stuff. This film was banned in several states, including Ohio. You won't find this on Wikipedia. I only found this through the Joyce Milton biography, where the star, Edna Pierre Vance, who played Marie, who was Chaplin's leading lady for so long and was his lover at formative periods of his career. In fact, there's a scene where she sees this engagement and she's not getting that. And you could almost feel like that's Edna being upset at at Charlie's engagement to Pola. A lot of his structure, his life comes into his films in that regard. But she was involved. She was charged as an accessory to a homicide after this film was finished shooting. Because one of her friends had shot a man, apparently in self-defense. It was a wealthy yacht owner that was shot and killed. Edna and her friend were the only witnesses. So, and she was on trial and she was found not guilty. But it was a lot like with the Fatty Arbuckle situation. It was done and done. It was the controversy was still there. Mm. Her film was banned in Ohio, was the first one to ban it. I believe the film board censors. And then there were other states that that banned the film just on those merits, which probably didn't help with the box office receipts as well because of Edna's involvement. But Chaplin did not want to get rid of Edna. And she tried to keep working in film, but she couldn't really. So she retired in 1923, except for a few occasional cameos and Films like Monsieur Vadu, I believe, and Limelight, definitely, she does a cameo in. And she married someone outside the Hollywood sphere. And after he died, Chaplin resumed paying her money because she was one of his first leading ladies and he wouldn't have a career without her. And he knew that and said, I wouldn't be Charlie Chaplin without Edna. 
That's why I can't dislike him because just like he still supported his friend who was struggling. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, those juicy Hollywood secrets Mm -hmm. and how that could have affected the box office and how people viewed her character, Marie, where they're seeing her. It's like, of course, she's a she is a gold digger. She's also a murderer in real life, (laughs) even though that wasn't the case. Same with Fatty Arbuckle. He was exonerated. Those ideas of what the silent film era of Hollywood, those scandals really affected how a lot of people saw Hollywood at the time. It almost feels like the characters in this film are, to a certain degree, it's um, Chaplin and the Tramp even's personality as filtered mm-hmm. through a prism and split into a few different characters, right? Because you yes. you have this kind of you mm-hmm. know aloof, upper-class person in Adolphe Menjou's Pierre. Mm-hmm. You have the romantic artist who kind of, in this case, to a massive fault, idolizes this kind of conservative mm-hmm. idea of classical virtue with Jean. And you have the rags to riches heroine mm-hmm. who doesn't really know where her sympathies lie because mm-hmm. she sees uh, she's experienced it all in Mary. And each character is an incomplete portrait, it's self-portrait of Chaplin. Exactly. But I also want to bring up the mother, too. I think yeah. the mother also really, you almost feel like at times that she's kind of like, she's in the background, but you're trying to figure out why she is so much. And then during the climax of the scene after Jean's suicide, she tries to get revenge on Marie, but she discovers Marie crying over her son's body and realize that she really did love her son and she lets go of the pistol and becomes technically a family with her, becomes the mother Mm -hmm. for her. And they both become matronly women at this orphanage they create. That's also a part of Chaplin, because I think also Chaplin loved kids. He loved their innocence. He wanted to protect kids. And you could see that with the kid. You could see that pictures with his own kids, because for all accounts, he was a very devoted father. And he understood what it was like to be that kid who had no who guidance, no family, having to be at the pauper school, living in an orphanage for long periods of time while his mother was committed in the sanatoriums and his father wanted nothing to do with him. And also being separated from that family scape. He had two half brothers, including one he didn't see for 30 years of his life. Mm. So I think that really does connect with that because I think he does have the desire to have a woman, a mother in the in the sphere. You could see this with modern times too with Paulette Godard's character mm-hmm. who takes care of the house and they have the suburban house in that one scene. They're imagining it. And it's just like she is like this devoted wife who is going to be this mother. I think it's, it's, it's probably uncontroversial to say that you can see the effect of this film on later Chaplin mm-hmm. entries. Well, of course, the class struggles in the way you see and how he frames a lot of the party scenes you can see emulated again with city lights and where the tramp accidentally ingratiates himself into those spheres and with also women because women in his roles, even though they still kind of go back to the virtue, they're still they still kind of, they have autonomy. Paulette Goldodge's character, the orphan, she refuses to go to the orphanage too. She she becomes a vagabond with him mm-hmm. and actually makes choices of her own. And the same thing with her character in The Great Dictator, where she actually, she actually is part of the underground against the Nazi parodies. I'm glad I watched The Kid and The Pilgrim before this. Um, and I also watched mm-hmm. the, rewatched The Gold Rush because there, there's such an interesting progression because the kid is this, you know, big experiment mm-hmm. in mixing tones. But um, the way that, for example, mm-hmm. the, I, I, I don't want to say there's melodramatic elements in the kid, 
but the, the what melodrama there is tends to be expressed in these larger gestures. Mm-hmm. The tramp, you know, having to be restrained by the police. It's in that film. Edna Purvis's uh, performance is not half as what we might call naturalistic as it is in A Woman of Paris. But we can see, for example, the performance of Virginia Sherrill as the blind woman in City Lights really does recall Edna's performance in A Woman of Paris and the the attention given to the small gestures of the face, the kind of delicacy of it. So it almost feels like uh, this is another element that Chaplin kind of folded into his style, this kind of bandwidth he gave himself between the slapstick of the tramp, which, you know, obviously he returned to immediately. And this Mm -hmm. very delicate, lighter touch he uses for actors in different Mm -hmm. registers. And the fact that they can often coexist in the same movie is remarkable. They really can. And it's also remarkable to see. I think some people have issues with it, but I kind of don't. But that even though he still shows poverty in a bunch of his films, it's still kind of glamorized because, I mean, Edna's never seen, even when she's just a village girl, she's got makeup all up in her face and then the first shot was Paulette Godard was that modern times you saw that close-up of her face and she's got full eyeshadow eyelashes curled and you're like yeah that's an orphan struggling to eat right there so he still wants to have that bit of Hollywood glamour with uh-huh. that scenes of poverty which is a fascinating dichotomy when you actually do see that dichotomy play out in his films with actual rich people with the poor and it may be because he wanted people to see look at this beautiful woman i am sleeping with but because of that they're just so magnetic you're just drawn to the women in his films just like he was so i think she's the most interesting character in this film oh yeah i think i mean she's the most dynamic character i'm drawn to adolf menju first mostly because i think he's just mm-hmm, he's such yes. a disarming presence <laughs> it's a perfect character actor i mean he, mm-hmm. he played this almost exact role in numerous films but i think edna's doing this real craft of acting <laughs> naturalism you know and not, yes. not to say one of those is above the other i think those are those are two schools yes. but each of them the fact that you have two just shining examples of these utterly different registers that performers can be in in the same movie it speaks to the, the immense interest of this film and it really does actually point compare and contrast the different worlds they live in because she grew up in poverty mm. in the village while pierre played gloriously by Menju didn't i don't think he really did in real life because they supplied their own costumes so that was his own wardrobe so he came from an upper class echelon so and it's just fantastic to see that mm-hmm. and to see that and i think as joyce milton point points out i think chaplin admired it even if he didn't want to admit it and that's why he shines in the picture Menju is if you were to like write out the story on a script Menju would his character mm-hmm. pierre would probably come across as just like completely unsympathetic, right? Just this does not treat anyone around him like a human, does not acknowledge the existence of conflict as an no. idea, it seems. But just the way he's played, he, no. he's just, Mm-mm. he enjoys <laughs> life. He just loves his, he just, he just yes. loves playing his saxophone yes. and just, and just observing people. He seems yes. like someone who is almost humanistic in his love of watching people make mistakes. Driving in his automobile. Yeah. <sighs> like, I can't help but root for the guy against my better judgment. I know, I know. And I think Chaplin and Joyce Milton would agree with you on that for her biography of him. And I think Chaplin did have sympathies with him. And I mean, I think it was hard not to because he was ingratiated with all those people who acted like that. And 
if he didn't have support from them, he could be blackballed. Mm -hmm. So I think he did have sympathy. A bunch of them were his friends, people who acted like that. Yeah. And he has actually gone Mm -hmm. on the record about his experiences with both Chaplin and Lubitsch. Um, He was actually good Mm -hmm. friends with Lubitsch. Apparently, he was a house Mm -hmm. guest frequently. Um, There's anecdotes in both the biographies of Reddit Lubitsch about Adolf Nadju, like playing with Lubitsch's kids and just, you know, he seemed, he seemed like they, they were tight. But his feedback he gave on both Chaplin and Lubitsch as, as a director is interesting because he said this about Lubitsch. Lubitsch as a director had the same regard for realistic and subtle touches as Chaplin, but his methods were entirely different. Lubitsch planned everything very carefully in advance. He knew the content of every scene before he began shooting, and he acted out every part in rehearsal. And that is a common refrain you hear among almost every actor who worked with them. Some love it, some hate it. I discovered in this picture that all I had to do was to make Lubitsch happy was to step before the camera and mimic every gesture he gave me, which is actually what they tell you in yes. directing school not to do. And yet, mm-hmm. here we are. Yeah, I bring up Liv Ullman a lot because she brings us up that this, there was no script. There was just a basic plot outline mm-hmm. because that's what Chaplin did. He just did basic plot outlines and people, and he told people what the scene was about and to improvise a lot. And he decided, no, 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 you're not doing it right. And that frustrates some people who just wanted to be like that, just told what to do. And then he would add the intertitles afterwards. So he would just write the intertitles right there during the editing process. Interesting. Yeah. I think that inspired a lot of the French New Wave directors. Like Jean-Luc Godard was very much like that too, where there was an abstract of the scene, what he wanted and the things he wanted them to discuss. But he said, improvise, discuss and say it in your own words mm. and do not use as many words because Jean-Luc Godard was very much that he did not like when there was so much dialogue in cinema because he said, you came to watch. You didn't come to listen in his words. And Godard was a huge admirer, Truffaut as well, of Chaplin and that work ethic. Jean-Luc Godard was also a Marxist and also was a purporter of those ideals, same as Chaplin. Yeah. And that was just unique. That wasn't something you really did. I think the only other director who really did that was um, Murnau. So yeah, he was very much like that too. In fact, one of Murnau's films didn't even have inner titles in there. The Last Laugh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The Last Laugh. Because he said, I want people to see it. I don't want people to hear it or read it. Mm-hmm. And I think Chaplin really took from that as well. Lubitsch and Chaplin have both spoken about this. They went out of their way to limit the amount of intertitles where Lubitsch would just cut mm-hmm. them down. And he was never dogmatic about it. But, you know, you see even his some of his Berlin films where to a fault in the early days, like I think in The Married Jail, to a fault, there's very few intertitles occasionally where I'm like, you know, you're not quite yeah. good enough yet <laughs> to, to sell this and to mm-hmm. give me the inference yet. <laughs> Wait 10 years. By the time he got to the you know marriage circle, he was a master of them. And A Woman of Paris... Part of why I'm doing an episode on it is that it is such an interesting flashpoint where I think it is undeniable that the film made an impact on Lubitsch. He has said as much. I mean, his reverence for this film is palpable in every single statement he's, mm-hmm. given, he's given about it. But there is also simultaneously this interesting disagreement as to what effect mm-hmm. it actually had on him. I think for a while there seemed to be almost a, um, the conventional wisdom might have been that, you know, there's a before and after you have Lubitsch, the director of epics, and then you have Women of Paris, mm-hmm. and then you have Lubitsch, the director of mm-hmm. light touch romantic comedy dramedies of people standing in rooms. Not really the case, right? Where you have 
you have Lords of the Pharaoh, which uh, to me is like the peak Lubitsch director of crowds in the Reinhard mold. And then you have, you know, The Flame, which is his next surviving film. I mean, it doesn't survive, but 20 minutes survives. You can watch the recreation, um, which is, again, him. It is him directing Polonegri in a melodrama that takes place largely in rooms. He said at that point he was still in Berlin at this time. He had never met Chaplin not seen Woman of mm-hmm. Paris did not exist yet. He mm-hmm. gave that wonderful quote of how many times can you direct thousands? Then he comes to Hollywood, mm-hmm. makes Rosita, which seems like a massive leap when you're mm-hmm. watching it because suddenly he's this master of tone and this the light touch is there, but the specific kind of register that exists starting with the marriage story doesn't exist mm-hmm. until he's seen a Woman of Paris. He saw a Woman of Paris right before making mm-hmm. Marriage Story. And I'm no critic, but I think there's a very clear inflection point there where even the presence of Adolf Manjou in both those movies is mm-hmm. terrific in both, where I, you can see this almost slight aloofness, this way of this register of making films in which characters are kind of too cool for school. <laughs> <They're>, um, <laughs> the stakes feel lower. Like in Rosita, the stakes still kind of mm-hmm. feel like life and death, even when it turns out they're not. Whereas in the marriage circle, the stakes are entirely what configuration romantically will this, these two couples end up with? That's the stakes. And there's always a sense that the no one is taking things as seriously as we, the audience, are taking it. So th- there's a definite change there. But I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. I've rambled on long enough. I think it's kind of a reflection of also him growing up, Lewitz growing up with Weimar Germany as well, which was very progressive. It was very... There were lots of LGBT rights activism. There was lots of feminist circles. A lot of the stuff we're still learning about because Nazis tried to erase it. And there is no way that he wasn't influenced by that, creating these circumstances where it's just like, oh, the conflict with whole like, oh, I can't decide between these two men like they're designed for living will be in a menage a trois and it'll just be all three of us all together and written by noel coward who was outwardly gay we now know Mm -hmm. and that's still jarring to watch i remember watching that final scene and thinking oh my god yeah 1930s you were on another level because we don't even have that there's we still have that conflict i even still whatever there's a love triangle movie i'm just like just all get together. You don't need to have all this conflict. But I like to make those jokes like design for living, did it? <laughs> There's echoes of that Weimar experience in every single one of his movies, starting with mm-hmm. basically the marriage circle, right? Mm-hmm. Smiling Lieutenant ends with the song Jazz Up Your Lingerie. And this, this kind of idea of, okay, <laughs> you know, the Chevalier character, he doesn't love this woman. He loves this specific attitude towards life that this woman exhibits. So if you can do that too, the person might be interchangeable. And that's kind of a very libertine <laughs> way of thinking. It is. It really is. And why his films and Chaplin's films, to an extent, also still just resonate in our in our culture because they're more progressive than what you realize. And you see those parts, you see those people just like, oh, we should, there's probably an issue with this. Oh, are you going to be a fallen woman? No, mm. because that doesn't, because sex before marriage is okay, because that's, what it was in that cultural sphere. And it was only when censorship really pushed it. And of course, the Weimar Aposh ended with the Nazis coming to power and the fascists. On a less society as a whole altering level, this happened too. I mean, with Lubitsch's ability to make films in this register with the Hays Code, right? Where, I mean, he he had the fortuity, you know, he became head of production of Paramount during this kind of 
period of upheaval. But there's a real point at which, you know, Lubitsch has to retreat from this kind of these kind of ideals too, starting with the angel. Yeah, it's like you had those limitations put in and those limitations were set by very evangelical Christian groups. It's yet another thing where I just, Lubitsch died so young that I, it makes me sad that he never I lived know, he was only in his 50s. Yeah, he could have, we could have gotten out 20 years of great cinema from him and he could have outlived the Hayes Code. In 1926, um, a journalist asked Lubitsch why he was satisfied to direct light comedy. And again, this is around the time he was releasing <laughs> stuff like uh, Forbidden Paradise, which is, yeah, it's a rather light yes. film. When you might do another passion, which is the American title for Madame Dewberry. Lubitsch cited Chaplin and Moliere as great comic artists, but the interviewer dismissed Chaplin as hardly to, to be compared with the latter. And Lubitsch, mm. clearly incensed, mm. replied, the woman of Paris, the woman mm -hmm. of Paris, a masterpiece, such genius. What I love about that quote where he cites a woman of Paris is not, there's two things there. One is that, yeah, Chaplin was capable of directing a great drama, but also mm -hmm. that the woman of Paris is still this light film. It, it's not, it's not this yeah. holy, heavy, like it, it is, it's no Madame Dubarry. It's a film where levity exists, where it's mm -hmm. pleasures come just as much from seeing Adolf Menjus ham it up with mm -hmm. his mustache as it is with mm -hmm. seeing Mary become sobered by her lover's death you know those two things can coexist yeah it's nothing like i mean because we saw really dramatic films with dw griffiths besides the exploitation the horrible birth of a nation he also had orphans of the storm and intolerance which they all were seeped in this melodrama and conflict mm. and you're watching this and it had a bunch of that and even with sweden with um the phantom phantom carriage they mm -hmm. also they had that with that film you had demille too doing you know these kind of chamber dramas there was a lot of this conflict and there's also this hint, this idea that we can't take things as seriously if we have it with light, lightness or brevity or with this idea that comedy means that we can't take it as critically or engage with it as critically as those straight dramas. And we still see this with with Oscar season. We still see this with award season, mm -hmm. which is actually kind of why I was happy everything ever all at once won Best Picture because it had that perfect amount of bathos, which I think Chaplin inspired too. And we wouldn't have that film without Chaplin really paving the way for us to to have these this bathos in our films where we have this right amount of levity with with seriousness. Mm -mm. Strangely enough, I think there's an irony in the way that this film is relatively forgotten in Chaplin's history. You know, the drama he yes. made, the drama that is, is supposed to be taken more seriously as art is not really remembered in mm -hmm. the same breath as, I mean, I'm look, I always look on Letterboxd mm -hmm. for like, when you control for contemporary cinephilia, Woman of Paris is number 11 on Chaplin's filmography. Uh, and the vast majority of, of, of the films before that are, are straight comedies. It's kind of an interesting inverse of the problem that has bugged Lubitsch's critical reputation, where because Lubitsch's most acclaimed films are all comedies, modern critics often don't take him as seriously as the you know dramatic directors. And for Chaplin, his one early silent dramatic foray is not really given the time of day because he's such an iconic director of comedies. I mean, The Tramp is the silent film comic icon i think also the sentimentality mm. i think it's a big part of that because i think a lot of things we miss with a bunch of films especially that want to take everything super seriously which we brought up is that we lose a lot of the heart in it and we lose a lot of sentimentalism because it's framed as corny mm -hmm. and ew feelings or campy and 
there's this thing, there's this sincerity there, that sincerity that we've lost so much and so much of cinema. It's great to see it and to revisit that and why we revisit films, why we'll watch things like Lubowitz's films. We'll watch Chaplin's films again. We'll watch Frank Capra's films because of their sentimentalism where everybody is given reverence, where every scene is given emotional weight tied to it. And and there's no much cynicism in there, which there's so much cynicism. It's a struggle to take sincere cinema seriously and sentimentalism seriously when we watch it. And that's why these films are a brush of fresh air. I also think the language of of, of sincerity shifts such that mm-hmm. we are trained as a society to see these older languages as corny or campy, mm-hmm. right? Where yes, and it doesn't help that this is played twenty percent too fast. And I think part of what makes this film age so well is that he, I think Chaplin here mm-hmm. avoids that more than most, and so it's acceptable to kind of untrained yes. eyes now. <laughs> but I mean, you see yes. most most silent films of this era, silent dramas, even the ones that really work. Um, in my opinion, you kind of mm-hmm. have to learn the language of what these actors are doing. Like, yeah, what is, you really do. What is pantomime mm-hmm. style acting, and how does that work? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you're just looking at it from the the post Lee Strasberg world, and where obviously it seems completely ridiculous to someone who doesn't understand what language this is this is operating in. Agreed, and I really love that silent film has that, that international hardly any barriers to international audiences because of that pantomime because we all connect we see these facial expressions we see these emotions we see these hand gestures body movements in similar fashions which is why also slapstick it's a universal language of comedy so i'm gonna say first thank you so much for joining us on this show thank you for having me (laughs) again (laughs) is there anywhere online that people who uh, have enjoyed this episode might find your writing or your work well, I have a blog, Mollywood Writes at WordPress.com. I'm also on Twitter and I also have written a bunch of stuff for the filmstage.com. So you can find my writing in theirs. Well, uh, doing the show, the most rewarding thing about it has been the excuse to talk to people about the, this this massively undercovered subject. So thank you so much for donating your time to this podcast. <laughs> thank you for having me. And it was and this was fun. I love bringing up these these works from especially artists I admire. Next week, Sarah Shackett joins us to discuss The Marriage Circle. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Will Ross was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 